0: Let freedom ring, let freedom ring, let freedom ring,
1: let freedom ring. This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers.
0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. We open each seminar, each edition of the podcast with a poem, our common practice, and our ritual announcement. The seminar is now in session. Today's poem is the brilliant Martin Espada's Call to Arms, Imagine the Angels of Bread. This is the year that squatters evict landlords, gazing like admirals from the rail of the roof deck, or levitating hands in praise of steam in the shower. This is the year that shawled refugees deport judges who stare at the floor and their swollen feet as files are stamped with their destinations. This is the year that police revolvers stove hot blister the fingers of raging cops and nightsticks splinter in their palms. This is the year that dark-skinned men lynched a century ago return to sip coffee quietly with the apologizing descendants of their executioners. This is the year that those who swim the border's undertone and shivering boxcars are greeted with trumpets and drums at the first railroad crossing on the other side. This is the year that the hands pulling tomatoes from the vine uproot the deed of the earth that sprouts the vine. The hands canning tomatoes are named in the will that owns the bedlam of the cannery. This is the year that eyes stinging from the poison that purifies toilets, awaken at last to the sight of a rooster-loud hillside, pilgrimage of immigrant birth. This is the year that cockroaches become extinct, that no doctor finds a roach embedded in the ear of an infant. And this is the year that food stamps of adolescent mothers are auctioned like gold doubloons, and no coin is given to buy machetes for the next bouquet of severed heads in coffee plantation country. If the abolition of slave manacles began as a vision of hands without manacles, then this is the year. If the shutdown of extermination camps began as imagination of a land without barbed wire or the crematorium, then this is the year. If every rebellion begins with the idea that conquerors on horseback are not many-legged gods, that they too drown if plunged into the river, then this is the year. So may every humiliated mouth, teeth, like desecrated headstones, fill with the angels of bread." That's Martin Espada, Imagine the Angels of Bread. Let's continue with our second traditional feature, our free write. So pause the podcast for just a few minutes and write wildly without taking your fingers from the keyboard. No stopping, no edits or revision. Today's prompt is taken from Aspada's poem. Write 10 or 20 lines, each line beginning with the phrase, this is the year, then moving toward upending some injustice you perceive in our shared world. This is not so much a New Year's resolution as a call to arms. Okay, start writing. I'll be right here when you get back.
1: If you want to share your response to the writing prompt, record a voice memo on your phone. Include your name and city and send it to us at underthetreepod at gmail.com. For clips and interviews, subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree Podcast. And please leave a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend about the show.
0: Welcome back. I've got a special guest today for our recurring segment, Activists and Artists After Hours. AAAH can be pronounced as a question, an exclamation point or simply a sigh. She's a peace and justice activist, a militant freedom fighter, a human rights law professor, and pioneering child advocate, who's written extensively about children in trouble with the law, human rights, and children. And she's been a leader in the successful effort to abolish first the despicable juvenile death penalty in this country, and then the draconian sentence called, quote, juvenile life without possibility of parole. She was also a leader of Students for a Democratic Society, 50 years ago and a founder of the Weather Underground in the 1970s. She spent more time than anyone on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list without actually being captured. And she did most of a year in federal lockup for refusing to speak to a grand jury. And she never did snitch. She's a prison and police abolitionist driven by curiosity and empathy. We've been co-conspirators, comrades in arms, and lovers for more than 50 years. Welcome, Bernadine Dorn. <laughs> what made you laugh? What part of that made you laugh?
1: Every part of it. That was a lot of 50 years rolled up into a long into sentence. A, into one sentence, exactly. <laughs> but I like the ending. <clears throat> well, lovers and comrades. Yep.
0: Comrades in arms, lovers, and co-conspirators for over 50 years.
1: And parents and grandparents.
0: Parents and grandparents. So we are, uh, you know, sheltered in, at home, sheltered in place. Uh, during this COVID-19 crisis, and as I've said to many of our friends, I've never been in a cell with a lovelier cellmate <laughs> than you. Um, <laughs> and and even though there's inconvenience, we count our blessings and feel nothing but empathy for people who are not who are not uh, lucky enough uh, to be where we are. And that's a heartfelt sense that. We may all be in this together, but some are really, really suffering and some are simply inconvenienced and our hearts are with the suffering.
1: That's a terrible, terrible time, but of course I'm the lucky one to be with you and uh, you both keep me laughing, you already have. and. Uh, you have managed to invent the new idea of making a surprise dinner every night. That's true. <laughs> so that's true. I get to be both surprised and then have a delicious one dinner I, sitting on the couch with you.
0: One of the things that's fun about about the last couple of months is every morning begins with a yellow pad and, the first, and it's an agenda. And the first item on the agenda is make a list. And then the list includes the same stuff over and over, but somehow having it as an agenda seems to... I don't know what, make it more sensible. Anyway, I wanted to ask you uh, to begin, you know, what is bringing you joy in this time? What, what, what aspects of, of your life right now bring you joy?
1: Well, the first thing that pops to my other than you making me laugh, that has to be number one. But, uh, you know, the first thing I think about and what I think about in the middle of the night is our grandchildren, of course. Never imagined I'd be a grandmother. Never imagined. I used to be sure that I was never going to have children. So, uh, and I never had a grandparent. I never met a grandparent of my own. So it's a new invention and a new delight. But lucky us, we have right now five grandchildren, and um, maybe we'll have a couple more.
0: Who knows? Um...
1: So it's them I think about because, you know, they. Are the older ones glued to their computers these days, uh, and the younger ones uh, having also a daily schedule about what they're going to do, mm-hmm. and, uh, and what are they doing? Ruining the, the fact that baseball season is not is been abolished this year.
0: And what are they doing? What kind of things are they doing?
1: They are doing brilliant things, from gardening to uh, you know puzzles making their own puzzles and doing puzzles and uh, dancing, having dancing lessons, doing yoga. Uh, Our older grandchildren are, you know, swept away of course by their peers and their best friends and chatting with them. But they also are, you know, making art and both of them are wound up in various forms of writing and drawing.
0: You know, Speaking of the grandchildren and your children, you raised three boys. Um, that was or, a surprise. Yeah, it was a surprise. Was... They're now in their forties, um, but it's kind of curious to think of a hard political feminist like yourself living with me and then having three boys. So there were four, four young men and four men in the family. It's <laughs> a very you. male family. Yeah. So, I... what was it like raising boys? What were, the, what were the guidelines? What you you
1: know, I, I read a lot of feminist scholarship before uh, went, while I was pregnant and found out that, did I find out I was having a boy? Yes, I did. And uh, I, you know, Adrienne Rich was my Bible at the time. Uh, I found many women who I admired who had multiple sons uh, as a challenge in life. And um, so I, I took it on as a challenge and as something that was going to be an open an open story in the life of raising young children and young boys. So, you know, our boys to this day are embarrassed by various pictures of how they were dressed when they were little. What do you mean? What kind of
0: things? <laughs>
1: well, you know, famously, our oldest son, uh, you know, wanted to... Be a dancer and wanted to take dance lessons, and so then he wanted a tutu, and I made him a tutu. And uh, we have pictures to show it, but he would be, yeah, moderately amused and mortified to see it. Our middle son uh, wanted his hair long or refused to have his hair cut. It was kind of a combination of those two things, and ended up, because he was blonde or I don't know why, being mistaken for a girl all the time, and he used to you know, kind of generously correct people if the conversation went more than a sentence or two, um, but not angrily and not out, never outraged, just like, what a fool you are, you have no idea who I am, kind of thing from a three-year-old with long blonde hair. Uh, they each had such a, you know, temperament and such a third son, of course, went through a period of tremendous uh, anger and upheaval. Uh, and he too had his, you know, his own sweet self, the things that made him happy and thrilled him to death, and still do today. Why he, was
0: he? Why was he angry? And t- tell a little bit about your. Husband. Well, our
1: third son, I would say, sort of fell on us. His name was Chaza, and he, uh, which refers to a, a, a Swahili name, dancing feet, because he was a footling birth. Uh, to two of our very close friends and comrades over the years, um, Kathy Boudin and David Gilbert, and they, uh, at the age of, so we, I was at his birth, um, but we were all fugitives at the time, so there was no, no telling of that, and uh, then 14 months later, his parents had him at the babysitter and were arrested, and Chayza went to his grandparents for a week, I knew his grandparents well, Leonard Boudin and Jean Boudin, who lived in the village. We decided to go down there after Kathy and David were arrested and bring a bunch of baby clothes. And uh, within a couple of weeks, Chesa had moved in with us and had become our third son, uh, with two parents, two mothers and two fathers, and uh, he still is that person. So the three boys, and it really my story of that adventure is that challenging as it was for Chaza and for all of us, it was really our two older sons, Zaid and Malik, who took Chaza under their wing and helped him to learn to play and to settle into life in our family. It took several years and a fair amount of medical attention, but... Uh, he, uh, you know, at the end of the day, they are solid three brothers and extraordinary people, each in their own right.
0: But, you know, particularly them being boys, I mean, did you have any do you have any stories or any particular emphasis on being a certain kind of boy raised oh, in, yeah, this, of course. in this particular culture, in this particular
1: Of course. We sang um, all the songs about, you know. You know, it was okay to be girlish and it was okay to be a girl and we, uh, they had dress-up clothes in a box in the corner and they could put on anything they wanted to and wear what they wanted to and they, uh, the hair. I mentioned the hair because that was a telling thing about whether they'd be immediately recognized as a boy or a girl. But, you know, they played sports. I love, happen to love baseball and basketball. So sports were good for me with them. I ended up being a little league co-coach for many years. once we moved to Chicago, and uh, you know, they they uh, they each took their own path, of course, as as kids do. But it was an incredible time being with them. And now I I think back on those years when <laughs> when we. Uh, we moved to Chicago uh, when you got a job at the University of Illinois at Chicago from a fifth floor walk-up apartment in New York where we had to carry down the laundry and carry up the laundry and carry up you know, the groceries and three little boys for a long period of time. We came to Chicago and it was you know, uh, so easy in a way, but the challenge for me was being the mother of little boys in a new place You had the job. You were what moved us here. And I used to pass other women and meet people dropping them off at school and think, could you be my friend? Could you be my friend? Where am I going to find a woman friend? How am I? Of course, now that all feels silly because we've had a long, wonderful life here. But the challenge of having women friends uh, and the ability to talk about the joys and challenges of raising boys was all right there. I think, you know, the question of, of male privilege and what's taken for granted for boys, how people talk to boys uh, on the street if they know it's a boy, which they didn't always know, and uh, how you let them become their, themselves without the shackles of gender constraints. And of course, this was back 40 years, so it, the constraints were uh, profound.
0: But like when they became teenagers, for example, mm-hmm. are there any lessons that you felt were particularly important because they were boys raised in a male chauvinist, male supremacist world? Did you have... Yeah, of course. Well, part of,
1: Well, for example, I don't know if I have an easy example. The, the challenge was always that they treat girl. well, not always, but certainly by the time they were 10 and 12, the challenge was how do you treat girls and how do you talk about girls? And you know, like the question of racism, male supremacy is both secret and open. So, you know, I used to say, if how do how do guys talk to each other in the locker room? They were all doing sports at that time. You know, what is said in the locker room about anybody, any mothers, girlfriends, other kids in your class, girls, people who were gender fluid or didn't conform to the stereotypes, and, you know, that you had to behave yourself. I I was pretty harsh about how you had to not only do the right thing yourself, but challenge it. And, of course, the lessons from our life together around racism was that it's not enough to not be an active racist. You have to challenge racism wherever you see it in small and huge ways. And if you're not actively fighting it, it doesn't matter what's in your heart, really. Uh, you you need to express that, and by by challenging hateful behavior. So that that flowed over into the question of girls and how girls were talked about. And of course, that is one of the hardest things I think for when you think about standing up uh, against vicious boy talk, uh, whether it's in the locker room or on the school bus or you know, outside in the yard, uh, how men talk about women. So we had endless discussions and challenges about how they do that and how you can say the right thing. There's no right thing to say, but whatever gesture you make, it has to be an act and an intervention in organized, systemized hatred and demeaning behavior.
0: You were a law professor for a long time, and you taught a class for a while called What Kind of a Person is a Child? And that, na- that title always intrigued me. And here we are talking about your own children and when they were children and your grandchildren. So maybe say a word about why that why that title, What Kind of a Person is a Child? And what what was the content of that teaching? What did you do with that kind of syllabus?
1: Well... You know, for I fell into the area of children's rights, and it it nourished me and and uh, fascinated me, and still intrigues me uh, as a as a pedagogy and as a advocacy tool. Um, for you know, more than a third of the world's population is ch- our children. Mm-hmm. Whether you say that's under the age of 18 or 20 or 13 doesn't really matter. Um, but children have been uh, treated as property. Uh, for centuries, and in almost every culture. And so, the property of adult males usually, but eventually of adult women also, uh, but not as persons, not as whole persons or becoming persons. And so that, it still intrigues me, how do you decide when a child has a right, when does a right come into their life? You know, a right to be heard, a right to be understood, a right to be cared for by loving parents. Um, uh, and uh, a right to some equal treatment. When do children have political opinions? When do they get to involve themselves? Is it really 21 or 18? Isn't that arbitrary and foolish? So our kids, of course, grew up hearing political arguments and discussions all the time in our house, but I think that uh, the issue on a global scale is obviously about children uh, having food first and health care appropriate health care and be born into a family that can care for them Uh, and the you know the right to friendships the right to religion the right to speech uh, and and the right to thrive so it's economic rights as well as social and political rights in the united states human rights was always without economic rights Uh, as it developed in the last century Uh, and there was kind of a divide between the so-called socialist world and the so-called capitalist world but now it's recognized really that economic rights are crucial for children pretty much recognized not implemented but recognized so those questions um, still drive me crazy and inspire me
0: but but, what what kind of a person is a child you move toward rights but but what, why do you ask the question that one? What kind of a person is a child?
1: Because it's because it's a becoming person, mm-hmm. and it's a it's not an easy. The reason that was the title of my course for a long time is because you couldn't answer it with a mm-hmm. single word or a single sentence. Mm-hmm. It's always changing, and it's changing right in front of you. And it since everyone was a child, it's a global question. It's a universal question. I think it takes various forms, of course, in different cultures, but how do you, how does, do you have a right to an education? What does that mean? What does that possibly mean? Or a right to the highest available standard of healthcare? What does that mean? Uh, A right to citizenship and to belong to a country. What does that mean for all the millions of children in motion or whose countries are being? Uh, uh, occupied at this very moment, or children who are f- into forced migration and crossing borders. So, and you know, for many, most children, not most, but a good proportion of the world's children are in those conditions of peril and imminent, you know, uh, damage, if not death. And how do we think about them as not just as appendages to their family, but as? As both individuals and part of a community, a culture, and and a society. So it's the community ties uh, that fascinate me in that question of what kind of a person is a child. So I
0: hear you saying dialectically, it's a a child is both being and becoming. And a child is both autonomous, or say a child is a sacred one of one, but also a member of a community. Exactly. Can you hold that, how do you hold that tension in your mind? Exactly.
1: How do you hold that tension in your mind? And that's, you know, it's a contradiction and a tension. And I think that when the state interferes in a family, for example, let's just say uh, to take a child away from its parent or parents, um, or uh, or to uh, arrest a child, whether it's civil or criminal ways of intervening in the family, you are actually endangering almost everything that, about that child. You know, it was, it's funny because the, the family is both protective and a danger for a child and for children around the world. And, and it's, that, it's that contradiction. Most law, certainly human rights law, has decided that the safest place for a child is in a family. It's an assumption, a working assumption that can be overridden. But I think that it's the right assumption because the other assumption would give great power to the state or the church to, to wreak havoc. And the people most likely to love and care for a child it's that child's parents.
0: Yeah, and even in a very loving home, I mean, the being and becoming aspect is interesting because the family represents both. Um, a nest of safety and also a constraint to um, leaping out onto your own. So it's a funny contradiction. It is. So, so how did you teach that contradiction? What kinds of things did you read or discuss? What was, it, what, was that, what was it about?
1: We discussed, well, I'll give you an example. You know, one of the big human rights violations in the world is child marriage. So girls are sold as property and and given to their children. Uh, to their parents, uh, I mean, given to another family, given to a boy often, not even a man. Sometimes a man, sometimes somebody you know, decades older than them. And so that issue of bondage and of of uh, of, of how how marriage is played out uh, around the world leaves girls vulnerable and unable. So it removes them from education. So one of the things that's often pitted against each other is instead of attacking child marriage, you assert child education, girl education, Mm -hmm. and keep girls in school Mm -hmm. as long as possible, because that's one of the healthiest and safest ways to defer marriage and parenting and uh, child marriage.
0: Did you find your students following along with the contradictions? Did you find them understanding um, how how difficult it was to hold to these two ideas? Think about
1: teaching... yeah. Young students, uh, whether they're very young or whether they're law students, about these issues is that they're, they're intimate questions, even mm-hmm. though they're global questions. So, yes, I mean, I, I my classes were always filled. I learned as much from my students as I did from reading and studying these questions. Take, for example, the issue of corporal punishment of children. You know, it... it lights up the room. Uh-huh. People have intense uh, feelings about it, depending on how they were raised. This may be not so true this year, in this century, but it was certainly true 20 years ago. And, and it divided the class entirely. Many other human rights issues about you know, hunger and maternal mortality and issues like that, everybody could see that in parts of the world where that was a major question, that was terrible. But something like corporal punishment, you know, do parents have a right to hit, beat, uh, smack their child? Is that a way of learning and educating and growing up? Or is that an, a human rights violation is that an invasion of their ability to grow and make decisions for themselves? So the, those questions you know, always freaked everybody out.
0: And so you drew on people's experiences and you drew on human rights Documents in law and law, you drew on case law, I assume.
1: Absolutely.
0: Did you delve into imaginative literature? Of
1: course. We, we all kinds of literature, you know, certainly Dickens comes to mind around mm-hmm. children's rights, but uh, more contemporary literature too. And there's a, there's a million books on my syllabus uh, about what it's like growing up. I mean, you read Baldwin, for example, and you mm-hmm. think about somebody writing about their childhood uh, and how that, and reflecting back on, you know, the challenges you're facing in the bigger world today. Mm -hmm. Uh, Or, uh, who's the woman I always think about in Chicago, who grew up in Chicago? Oh, um, Lorraine Hansberry? Yeah, Lorraine Hansberry, you know, who, you know, had a wonderful and literary and famous established family here in Chicago that she she uh, grew up in and yet also then moving to New York became you know a crucible for her and in deciding in, become, in being an artist and living the short life that she had uh, as you know as a liberated woman mm-hmm. really in every way, a liberated person uh, and an anti-racist fighter. So yeah, I think literature is key to mm-hmm. these kinds of questions. I, in, the, in my most recent teaching, I always begin with Jesmyn Ward, because her book's about growing up in the South, uh, and in The, the Peril, uh, she writes less about her own memory of herself and more about her brothers and the men that she grew up with, so she wrote this stunning book called Men We Read, and I've taught this the last 10 years.
0: You know, you, you were a law professor, but you never passed the bar, even though you went to law school and graduated I from I passed
1: school. the bar, but I didn't get into the bar. Oh, okay. So tell, this is a fine me. distinction, I but see. it's one that matters to me. I see. Well, I explain had, what it, happened. It, well, when I graduated from law school, I uh, was a traveling organizer for the next three years uh, in the United States and then in the, in the world, but I didn't, so for I didn't who? take the bar. For, for who? Well, first You're for the National visit. Lawyers Guild. Uh, beginning Lawyers Guild chapters for the first time in law schools around the country, and then for Students for a Democratic Society.
0: And what was the Lawyers Guild for folks who don't know?
1: The National Lawyers Guild was a a left-wing radical bar association of activist lawyers. And uh, by the time I went to work for them right out of law school, it was quite reduced from its role in the 30s and 40s and 50s. And um, because of the witch hunts and McCarthyism, uh, and people, it, so it was very it had become very small. Although a terrific, brilliant group of lawyers still were affiliated with it, and they hired me to start lawyer skill chapters around the country. And now it's it's amazing. All these years later, it's still a robust and and lively uh, national organization and network of law students. Uh, encouraging people in the most kind of reactionary moment that they can have, which is, you know, law school education, (laughs) that actually you could do something different with law. You could make law uh, a tool for justice and a tool against discrimination and hatred and inequality um, as well. And and you should have those skills to do it. And you could also think about that radical tradition of lawyering this great literature um, Mike Tiger comes to mind, but many others writing about that relationship of law and property and and radical action. So uh, yeah, so I did that. And then
0: you and then you travel for students for Democratic Society. You said, but then many years later, you took the bar exam because you graduated from the university. Oh, I hadn't problem. taken the bar exam,
1: yeah. they <laughs> so busy. I took the bar exam yeah. after. Making a revolution didn't turn out exactly how I imagined it. Uh, yeah, I, we had uh, three little kids. I decided to take the bar exam and to do work for some radical lawyers in New York. I was working at an office of a feminist radical lawyer at the time. And um, I, so, oh my god. So I, uh, <laughs> I I took a bar review course in Midtown. Uh, Luckily, I met a young man who was taking it out of law school. Who rode the same subway line after the class each time. This was before you could listen to it online and just with earphones. Uh, you had to go attend the live lectures. And uh, I was, you know, dying in the in the weeds of property law and and, uh, and, uh, uh, and civil procedure. And um, He helped me. I I studied it. My kids used to say to you every morning when I went out the door, mom's going to the bar. I think that's what they said. I was going to Columbia Law School Library to try to put this stuff this into my mind. I passed the bar uh, exam, but then uh, the character committee got a hold of me and that turned into a carnival. It's not really worth talking about now, but I was a special committee of three men was appointed to See if I was had the ethical qualities of becoming a lawyer. That's pretty ironic when you think about it. But um, they knew it's there kind was of a low bar. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Anyway, uh, after after a year of interrogations, which were very much like a witch trial. I mean, it was you know, for example, a, a, for example. a battery of men questioning me and. But without very good background evidence about what I'd done or where I'd been. So it wasn't very much about being underground and the weather underground. It was just, you know, uh, one of them was a Virginia gentleman at a white shoe law firm. And he'd say to me, Miss Dorn. Did you really say? And then you would have a quote for something that had been in the Chicago Tribune for a speech I'd given in 1969. What kind of things had you said? That uh, well, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, it would be an out, you know, and it would be something about the police and what I thought should happen to them. So I would say, um, Mr. Kanaki, I still remember his name. Uh, I don't remember saying that, but I could have said it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was under one of these... Did you, know, you,
0: did you say, fuck the pigs, for example, <laughs> right? Um,
1: so there were questions like that, but, you know, after a year of this kind of uh, interrogation by a special committee, they wrote a 45-page um, opinion that ended with the line, at this time, on this record, Mr. Worm has not met her burden. So I was not allowed into the bar. Probably a good—I <laughs> don't know what you know where my life would have gone if I had been. Um, but what it did was it threw me into another world. And when we moved to Chicago, I went to work uh, out at Juvenile Court, the first world's Juvenile Court, mm-hmm. uh, founded by Jane Adams and the Hull House women in 1899. And in my in my life because we had three little kids. Uh, and you were teaching education, I thought, well, this is great. I'll do children's rights and juvenile law.
0: And you somehow got hired and created a center at Yorkshire University. I mean, and, somehow, Well, you created, you, <laughs> yes. you were in the bar and yet you were doing advocacy work and organizing and you were able to start a center.
1: Yes, I, I was very lucky and I had the opportunity to uh, started Children's Rights Center at Northwestern Law School in the legal clinic there, and um, I traveled for a year around the country looking at juvenile courts, looking at 20 different juvenile courts around the world, around the country, and yeah, around the country, uh, and f- found the good, the bad, bad, and the unbelievably horrible just from sitting observing them and meeting the judges. And uh, so I wrote a report on that, and I said we need to have a center that is, both represents kids and shows how it can be done in a, in a powerful way that puts the children's interests at, 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 at the center, at the sphere, at the point of the sphere, and that we can also advocate for children's rights in the areas of healthcare and education and uh, criminal justice, juvenile justice and criminal justice. So uh, I was able to hire an incredible team of people, uh, still doing incredible work today, really groundbreaking work. We got along well, we rolled along, and we took on controversial and unpopular cases.
0: What are you you proudest of in that work? Or what do you feel were some of the great accomplishments of those years?
1: Well, the most obvious great accomplishment was that we, we abolished the juvenile death penalty. It's kind of hard to remember how recently into this century, into this millennium, the United States was still in many states uh, around the country, uh, in the United States, executing juveniles for crimes they committed uh, while they were under the age of 18. And, you know, there were scores of people on death row who had been put there for a crime they committed as a juvenile. So we decided to take on the hardest things first rather than the easiest things uh, at at juvenile court, the misdemeanor arrests and all those ways in which children are pulled out of school and out of their homes and into terrible systems. So we took on the most extreme sentence thing and it took us, and this was also when the adult juvenile, when the adult death penalty was moving across the country, abolition was in the air and uh, uh, So, um, yeah, we took it on. It took us five years uh, to get a Supreme Court case abolishing the juvenile death penalty. The whole rest of the world, of course, except for about four countries, had abolished it by that time. So we partly made an argument that, you know, this was out of whack with everything that was being done in the rest of the world. But we also pointed out that it was discriminatory, racially discriminatory, and class discriminatory, and... That but, but for want of a good lawyer, people found themselves executed as children.
0: And you celebrated that victory, but you didn't kind of celebrate for long because you then took on...
1: No, the next day, really, this was 2005, in a case called Roper versus Simmons, and the next day we decided the next worth sentence given to children in the united states was a horrible sentence with the name of life without the possibility of parole so it was being sentenced to die in prison that was a, a
0: reframing you did that's uh, that jl Wap became sentenced to die in prison that's right, right. That's that was right. that was a good move in terms of yeah the, fr- framing the issue was yeah, always yeah. part yeah.
1: of the problem and especially with law which is you know, obscure to everybody except the people working in it, and you want a more popular understanding of what's happening. So, we said this was like the death penalty, uh, sentencing children to die in prison, life without possibility of parole. So, can you imagine being a 15, 14, 16, 17 year old with a sentence like that? What does that mean to somebody that age? I've interviewed and come to know scores and scores of people who had that sentence and later were released because of the campaigns that we were part of. Um, I'm not saying at all that I did this. This was, you know, a big national campaign. Uh, and, And asked them. Of course, they all said to a person, it wasn't until I was 28 or 30 that I even had the idea that this might mean I'll never, never get out of prison. It was a sentence that was incomprehensible to them, of course, and to their parents, and, and people felt helpless about it. And his sentences were outrageous because they included felony murder. You know what felony murder is, but most people don't, and it means that you don't have to be the person doing the killing. You just have to be in the crime in some way, in a car blocks away. Uh, As part of a group that decided it would be a good idea to do this robbery or intervene in this drug deal. And it went bad because somebody had a gun. So, you know, that also took us into the whole issue of gun control and kids with guns. We spent many years trying to get guns out of children's hands and and, uh, stop the terrible shootings that were happening in a pandemic way in schools across the United States. So uh, it was an area children's rights that we made broad and wide. We did cases at the border of kids coming alone across the border, trying to get into the United States to meet family members here, or to have a life, or to be away from the drug gangs uh, in their home country. So we, we, we had a wide idea of what we were doing, and we, more and more, I got to travel to South Africa, take my law students with me right as South Africa was becoming uh, freed from apartheid and, and uh, the African National Congress was elected to run the country. Uh, we, I took many trips with my law students to South Africa um, and then to other parts of Africa, to Malawi and other countries, and to Cuba, to countries in Latin America. So I felt that our, you know, our students should have a broad view of who the United States is in the world what a small part of the world the United States is and how we grow up with a sense that we are the center of the world.
0: I think a lot of people would find it ironic, to say the least, that you went from, that you were this law professor, this accomplished advocate on behalf of children, but you came to that from being on the 10 Most Wanted list. Say a word about how you got on the 10 Most Wanted list. (laughs) I mean, what was J. Edgar Hoover thinking?
1: I don't know what he was thinking. have no idea how I got in the 10th most monitor. Well, we declared war on the United States. Oh, that that, that was it. part of it. Yeah. But it wasn't exactly a serious threat to the power of the United States. But it was a challenge you know, that we felt uh, that we had to be in solidarity with the Black Panther Party and the Black Freedom Movement in the United States, that the Latino and Chicano movements were... Uh, Part of this struggle, Puerto Rican nationalism, and that if you looked broadly, it wasn't the invincible power and the singular uh, 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 kind of uh, patriotic necessity at all. It was a, a, a conquering imperial power, and and uh, you know, of course, the history of Native Americans make, makes that more clear than anything else. So. We had, we had ideas about this, and we, we went underground and became a fugitive. I'm not really sure, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> except that J. Edgar Hoover took it personally. And, uh, and so, yeah, we issued communiques. I was the spokesperson for it, declaring war on the United States and doing symbolic actions, bombings of, of buildings that were empty but were obviously symbols of American power. And everybody could understand the action at the mm-hmm. time.
0: Mm-hmm. And and how long were you underground? Ten years. Ten years, and uh, when you came above
1: ground? yeah. What happened? <laughs> well, um, what happened was that the federal charges, which there were many cons- federal conspiracy charges against us, you two also, um, had been dropped due to governmental misconduct. This was the years of. You know J. Edgar Hoover and various local red squads uh, taking the law into their own hands right. and having a program called COINTELPRO, counterintelligence program, to uh, assassinate African American leaders and to uh, uh, prevent the rise of another messiah. Uh, the dramatic, most dramatic example of this of course was the assassination of Fred Hampton the extraordinary young leader of the Illinois Black Panther Party, who was someone we knew and worked with, our our office, the SDS national office was in Chicago, Uh, the Black Panther Party office was just down the street, they used our printing press, we had been given an extraordinary printing press, a Gestetner printing press, German printing press by a, a woman, an American woman. Uh, Anna Louise Strong, who lived in China, <laughs> what a bizarre happening, but we had this extraordinary printing press, and so they uh, asked to be share the printing press, so the printing press ran 24 hours a day, uh, and uh, they were often in our office and we were often in theirs. And then watching you know, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark being assassinated by the Chicago police in affiliation with the FBI. Which we knew immediately because that was happening across the country. The assassination of black leaders had been part of our lifetime growing up, but the murder of Fred Hampton was, you know, next door to us in our back, in our front yard, and uh, it, it, yeah, it made us. That and the and the endless war in Vietnam, the destruction where six thousand people a week were being killed by American forces in Vietnam, made us decide to go underground.
0: Did you, did you think um, in your wildest dreams that you and your comrades could make a revolution?
1: Yes, we did. We looked around the world and we saw lots of uh, insurgent revolutionary forces and that had an internationalist perspective but were grounded in local circumstances. Uruguay, the Tupamaros is an example that just pops into my mind but certainly across Africa uh, and, and in Asia. So we looked at the third world and we were like, why not in the heart of empire? Why not take it down from inside? Because the damage being done by the United States in our name to people all over the world was incalculable. Uh, why should the wealth uh, of, and the mineral wealth and the strategic wealth of the world all come to the United States? So we felt part of a global revolution, yeah.
0: And do you think a revolution is possible today? (laughs) I mean, I don't mean literally today, but in the present?
1: Of course, it's always possible. I mean, life is filled with examples of unlikely and improbable change happening very quickly. And it's not always revolutionary change. It can be reactionary change. We appear to be in that moment right now. But change change is a given. So the question of uh, putting your, your shoulder to the wheel and joining the radical change of revolutionary change, a change that said these resources go to the people, to all of the people, to the people with the least. And in the latest iteration of that, of course, in our lifetime is both the environmental movement, the incredible uh, creativity and, and uh, actions to save the planet and the Black Freedom Movement. And so, you know, Black Lives Matter apparently comes I any mean, young people have been being killed by the police in my entire lifetime. But suddenly Black Lives Matter arises up. And of course, it's not sudden, it comes from a lot of roots that have been going, growing and being tended, uh, and a lot of self-education and a lot of coalition building. But then it comes up, and then Undocumented and Unafraid challenges the work at the border uh, and the notion that there's you know real Americans and people who shouldn't be allowed in. And each of these things that happens, the queer movement, of course, takes another whole iteration in the last two decades. So these are important challenges to the way you see the world and also who you can be in it. And it's been our desire to be part of it, not to be, certainly not to be in the leadership or given credit for anything, but to go to go along, to put our shoulder to the wheel. And you and I have tried to do that.
0: Are you still a revolutionary?
1: Absolutely.
0: Well, we've spoken for quite a while just now, and we're going to come to an end, but I could talk to you forever. <laughs> and, and I think I will. Oh. Um, but let's, I let's, love you. I love you back. Our next segment for today is reports from the front row, pages from a middle schooler's notebook, where we look at schools and education from the inside with our regular guest and reporter, Light Eye Lee. She's a writer, an artist, an acute observer, and a mini ethnographer, 12 years old in the sixth grade. Thanks for joining us under the tree, Lighty.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: It's good to see you. Yeah, thank you. That's gonna be my regular introduction, so get used to it. Um, (laughs)
2: Okay,
0: great. so I know that besides going to school by Zoom, you're taking an art class from our mutual friend, Ryan Alexander Tanner, who's a wonderful comic book artist. And I wonder if you could, I don't know how one does that kind of thing. How do you do, you know, art classes on on long distance learning? What do you do, literally?
2: Well, it's basically, it's a Google Hangouts meet with me and a couple of other girls
0: uh-huh.
2: around my age. They're mostly a little younger than me but um and we all have paper and a pencil and then we talk to ryan for a second about what we want to draw and then he'll walk us through how to draw it um by sharing his screen he uses photoshop Uh so that he can show us what he's doing what he's drawing um so you know we follow along with his lines and then every now and then we show him what we have so far. And then we finish. Okay.
0: And how long does it, how long does the class last?
2: The class is one hour, 4.30 what, to 5.30.
0: And why do you, why do you like it? You told me you like it. Why?
2: I do like it. Um, I like it because I like drawing and it's something to look forward to when the days kind of melt together in quarantine.
0: I see. And uh, what have you drawn so far?
2: Um, well, I've never really requested to draw something. I find that a little bit, I don't know. I'd just rather let someone else request something. But we have drawn, um, we've done proportion exercises. We've drawn a robot shark.
0: What's a robot shark?
2: Uh, exactly what it sounds like. It's a robot of a shark. <laughs> uh,
0: and how, how did yours look? Did you like what you drew?
2: I did. It was very, it was, you know, terrifying.
0: Was that his prompt, draw a robot shark?
2: No, it was one of the other students.
0: Oh, wow. That's a very cool prompt. Have you come up with any prompts?
2: No. Um, Like I said, it's a little I, – I just find it a little embarrassing. And, like, I want to draw this thing. A little why selfish, that, I guess.
0: Why, why is that selfish? Why?
2: I feel it – it probably has something to do with me being older than the other students. I oh, don't, don't want to be the, like, teenage – one who's like way too into it and it's like Got well it. this is what I want to draw I'm gonna like butt in front of all these like little kids and like say what I want to do so I usually let them do their prompt
0: yeah of course you can't be a bossy teenager because you're 12 right? okay
2: that that's fine a bossy 12 year old
0: okay pre-teenage
2: okay uh, you're a
0: pre-teen um uh and and is Ryan a good teacher yes why do you think he's a good teacher
2: um well, he takes into account, like, what we can do and what we can't. And he, you know, lets us take longer than, than other people might need. It's kind of like a holistic kind of thing.
0: Okay. And you've told me over the years other teachers that you like. I remember you liked Rob and you liked Carl and then you've told me about teachers you don't like. I mean, we've talked about this for a long long time. Of course. So, so Ryan, you think he's a good teacher, but in what, you know, think about him in relation to, to other teachers who liked, like Rob and Carl. You had Rob in 4th grade and Carl in 5th grade, right? Yeah. And and what are the qualities that make somebody a good teacher? I think teachers want to hear this from kids.
2: I this might seem like a comical approach to that question but i have one thing that if a teacher said to me that my opinion of them would go down very much what is it if a child asks to go to the bathroom you do not say is it an emergency
0: in no case
2: should you ask that
0: and has that happened to you
2: many times yes
0: okay so that's a bad teacher but yeah, I teacher, mean, what
2: are you supposed to say to that question? If you say yes, you seem disgusting. If you say no, you can't go to the bathroom.
0: <laughs> that is terrible. That is the worst. But so a good teacher is one who says, when you say, can I go to the bathroom? and say, sure, go ahead. And
2: of course, yes. It is, I feel like it's a human right. If there's a bathroom uh, down the hall, you should let them go.
0: Okay, so going to the bathroom is a human right. Yeah. I like it. I like it. Like we're going to add that to the universal declaration of human rights, going to the bathroom when you want to.
2: Of course.
0: The interesting thing is that only in school between kind of first grade and 12th grade, that's the only time you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom. Yeah. Every other time in your life, you just go to the bathroom. I mean, Not good. it's kind of crazy. So the, now I'm getting a, a working definition of a good teacher. They let you go to the bathroom.
2: That's one of the parts, yeah.
0: Anything else?
2: Um I like my teachers to like what they do. Okay. I have a math teacher this year whom I really like because she I mean, she's also an advisor. She's not my advisor, but she is my math teacher. Mm-hmm. And she is a math teacher not because she loves math, but because she loves kids and she loves teaching.
0: Oh, and I think okay. that's important. Okay, cool. So these are some criteria. We're going to come back to this. We're going to try to end up defining what is a good teacher, because I think your insights into it will help other people, especially teachers, think about their practice in a new way. Well, all right. that's, all the, that's all the time we have today, Lighty, So thanks for joining us, and I'll see you next time.
2: I'll see you next time. <laughs>
0: Before we say farewell for today i have a homework assignment for the listeners i'm really enthralled with that poem i read at the beginning imagine the angels of bread and so i'd like you to stay with it beyond our free right and use that as a starting point and develop it a bit further send it along if you like and i'll read a few of those on the air as we go along big thanks to my comrades from Ergo. Damon Williams and Daniel Kissinger, supervising producers and intrepid mentors in this enterprise. And to my workmate in arms, Malik Alim, engineer, recordist, mixer, musicologist, caregiver, and philosopher in residence. Our music is by Tom Morello. Our work is designed by Ryan Alexander Tanner.
2: Check out his website, ohyesverynice.com.
0: Thanks for being here with joy in my heart and justice on my mind. Until next time.